0: Chapter 4, the land, in which we examine Abraham's staggering trust in God and why such active trust is so difficult. Genesis 12, verse 1, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. So Abram went as the Lord told him. Key lesson. Abraham shows us in this moment that loving God means trusting him, even when it doesn't make sense. Aloha means hello and goodbye. As my senior year of college came to a dramatic close, I was in a pickle. Months earlier in New York, I had feebly but authentically placed my faith in God and gave him my allegiance. But now I had to figure out what in the world that might mean. One thing was sure. I had lived my life up until that point with my allegiance to pretty much no one except myself. I had to learn how to live this Christian life. I figured I didn't know anything, so I might as well spend a year or so hanging around Jesus people who did. So I applied to work as an unpaid volunteer at a Christian organization. Providentially, my resume floated across the desk of the international president of an organization called Youth for Christ and his assistant called me up one day asking if I was available to talk. Dr. Sam's deep, rich, booming Mufasa baritone voice came over the phone, and soon I had a year-long internship serving at the International Offices of Youth for Christ, which were in, wait for it, Hawaii. I was about to go serve God in Hawaii. All my friends who know, say it with me. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. Somebody testify As I got off the plane in Hawaii the ocean breeze blowing in my face I could not have been more excited I was living in paradise but best of all I was going to be useful I'd be serving as Youth for Christ communication director using my college degree my writing skills my journalistic experience to serve this global organization On my first day at the office which was on the bottom floor of a local church I got to meet everyone I'd be working with Dr. Sam showed me to my office. It was an old broom closet, a simple room encased in cinder blocks with no windows. Not the best view of the Hawaiian sky, but whatever. I was excited to get to work. What would be first? Perhaps some soaring corporate communique, outlining vision, redesigning the website? Follow me, Dr. Sam said, as we walked up the stairs to the sanctuary of the church, a huge circular room with white support walls framing huge floor to ceiling sliding glass doors. Do you see all these walls? Dr. Sam asked, opening the doors, transforming the sanctuary into an open air, breezy auditorium. Yeah, I said. Well, at night, the geckos come out and they leave little stains on the walls. Geckos? I said. I was from Ohio. We do not have geckos in Ohio. So, What I need you to do is take this bucket and that stepladder over there and clean all the walls, Dr. Sam said. Clean the walls, I said slowly. Yes, Dr. Sam said, handing me the bucket. When you're done, come find me. And with that, he left. When you're done, come find me. And that resulted in my first real argument with God. As I walked around the entire building with that red bucket, cleaning little beige pellets of gecko droppings and wiping little yellow stains of gecko urine off the white walls, I became more and more furious. I could not believe, could not believe that I had flown 4,459 miles to this stupid island to clean up lizard droppings. I did not graduate magna cum laude from a prestigious university and give up a hefty salary at some corporate job so I could clean up gecko poo-poo, I muttered to myself. Somewhere, I heard the clicking sounds of the geckos hiding in the mango trees outside, mocking me from a distance. I could almost hear their taunts blowing through the pineapple-drenched sun-kissed wind that whispered through the sanctuary. Fifteen minutes could save you 15%, they said. Shut up, you stupid pooping geckos! It took me the better part of two days to clean all the walls in that church. And then, when I was done, Dr. Sam walked up to me on the wood deck that surrounded the entire second floor of the church, and he handed me a scrub brush and pointed to a hose connected to a spigot. You already have a bucket, Dr. Sam said. When you're done, come find me. And then he walked away. I was so mad, so, so, so mad. You're not the boss of me. Look, nobody wants to be ordered around or told what to do. But in essence, this is the scenario that Abraham is invited into by God. Let's look at the invitation of God again and go through it slowly. Here's the text again, Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. As I read it, I think there are at least four main reasons why this sentence in Genesis 12:1 from God is bonkers. I mean, absolutely outrageous, truly, truly shocking. Number one, first reason, Abraham is told to leave his land. The first time I visited Europe, I was surprised at a cultural marker I noticed. In the U.S., when people want to get to know you, they ask, hey, what kind of work do you do? But in Europe, people don't ask that. They ask, where are you from? This simple question gives you mounds of insight into their personhood, their heritage, their culture, their identity. This is true for a lot of people throughout the history of the world. Where you are from is a large indicator of your identity as a human being. It roots you. I suppose in the US, our nation is so new and we are so transient, we don't even get this. But more than that, for Abraham, this is a risky move. In the ancient world, water is life and Haran sprung up as a major city because it's located right at the intersection of the Julab and Balich rivers. This was a safe bet. Abraham and his family were established in agricultural safety. Uprooting your animals and family like this was risky. This is not like a college graduate moving from home to the big city for a big job opportunity. This is more like the Oregon Trail. You leave and hope you don't die of dysentery. And the settling of the American West was the mid to late 1800s. This is 3000 years before that. Reason number two, Abraham is told to leave his family. If where you are from is important in ancient cultures, then family was even more important. The call of Abraham is a call for Abraham to abandon all sources of what people in the ancient world or in the ancient Near East would have considered the critical source of identity, his family. In the ancient world, heck, even now, cutting ties with your family is really challenging. In addition to that, God's invitation is also a calling for Abraham to abandon what people in the ancient Near East would have considered the critical source of support, his own family. If things went sideways in life, and things always go sideways, don't they? Abraham would be without any safety net. He's outside the space shuttle, spacewalking without a tether, supremely dangerous. Abraham is told to go, and even something as strong as his deepest familial ties was not to be an impediment to that. Reason number three, Abraham is not even told where he is going. Let's pretend we're hanging out. And I say, hey, let's go get something to eat. And you say, where? And I say, I know a place. Get in the car, I'll give you directions. You'd probably ask some clarification questions because one, you don't have all day. What if I want us to drive 600 miles to Roscoe's house of chicken and waffles in Long Beach? Sure, delicious, but that's an all-day trip. You don't have all day. You've got stuff to do because you're a busy, important person. So you want to know if you can veto the plans if it's not where you like. And number two, you'd also want to know because what if I want to take you to the Green Mint, a brand new vegan place that serves cold tofu bisque with sprouts. Now you want to know so you can veto the plans if it's not what you like. In either case, you want to know where you're going so you can ratify the plans if they seem good to you. Abraham doesn't get a chance to do this at all. He is asked by God to get up and go without even knowing the destination. That requires a crazy amount of trust. Reason number four, Abraham could have said no. God is not playing games with the request he's making of Abraham. There are promises of blessings that are unconditional from God, yes. But in a sense, those promises only get activated if, and only if, Abraham takes the offer. Abraham has to make this move to activate them. Just like the fresh prince had a wealthy, loving, extended family and butler waiting to give him a family, a home, and a much better life in Bel Air. But first, he had to move from West Philadelphia, where he was born and raised. He had to leave the familiar playgrounds where he had spent most of his days. Only then would he become the fresh prince of Bel-Air. Same for Abraham. The implications of this are quite large. Apparently, we humans have real agency. God will treat us like real sons and real daughters, real heirs, real selim, with real choice. This is not pretend, it's not pretense. Everything hinges on the command of God in Genesis 12. And if Abraham does not respond, the Bible would have been a really short book. Okay, I know, I know. God's will and purposes can't be thwarted by mere mortals. And undoubtedly, God would have found another human partnership. It was a joke, but you get what I'm saying. Thankfully, Abraham did respond. So those four reasons, that's a lot, right? In chapter 3, we examined the word faith, that Greek word pistis, the Hebrew word amon, and showed that it often means allegiance or loyalty or commitment. It's like a two-sided coin, and that's only one side. The other side of that faith coin is the word trust. Abraham's life showed allegiance and loyalty and commitment for sure, but this is where the trust aspect of faith enters into Abraham's story. This move that God asked demands deep trust from Abraham. Trust that God will keep his promises. Trust that this God isn't lying or tricking him. Trust that this God knows where he's going. Trust that this God will keep him and his family alive. Later in the Bible, the author of Hebrews gives some commentary about the life of Abraham, illustrating exactly this point. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith, pistis, is confidence in what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. By faith, Pistis, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, Pistis, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Abraham is showing us something terrible. Absolutely terrible. Living life with God, loving God means turning over control. We like to drive. For a long while, I was a pastor to youth and young adults. Now, a lot of young people come to the Bay Area because they're seeking job opportunities. After one service, a young woman I knew came up to me. She had a big interview for a promotion the next day and asked me to please pray for her. As I was praying, I prayed something like, you know, God, regardless of the outcome, we trust you. And then, and I will never forget this, this young woman stopped me in the middle of my prayer and she said, no, that is not what I want you to pray. Oh, well then, for the next few moments, she explained how she needed this promotion. She deserved this promotion, that this promotion was practically her birthright. And she told me to pray for that. Well, now I had a new problem. Uh, okay, so what if, and just go with me for a second, I said as kindly as I could, what if God doesn't want you to have this promotion? What if, again, just imagine with me that there are some aspects of this job that he knows would be bad for you. There are not, she said, in the same tone someone might use if, if I had just suggested that Britney Spears would make an excellent attorney general. I don't think I've ever been told what to pray. The point I'm trying to make is that this young woman was not trusting God with her future career. She had a very clear roadmap and she was asking, nay, demanding that God make this happen. Now, look, I am not knocking this young woman at all. If anything, that moment stands in such sharp relief in my memory because I do the exact same thing. I basically say to God, God, I'll trust you, but only if I know where you're going and what we're doing so I can endorse your decision. I get veto power. Okay, God? Cool. This is not what Abraham does. He just goes. He goes to the land of Canaan. This does not mean that he doesn't have questions. Later in the story, Abraham asks God some clarifying questions about the promises that God made back to him in chapter 12. Abraham was supposed to get a child and be the patriarch of a nation, but he doesn't have a kid yet. His servant is set to be his heir. Abraham wonders if God has forgotten perhaps wondering if the son thing was via adoption. And God clarifies, saying that, yes, Abraham will have a son who is your own flesh and blood. And then one of the most famous passages in the entire Bible shows up, Genesis 15, verse 6. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. This key verse in Genesis, Genesis fifteen six, is quoted five times in the New Testament. As we saw in chapter 3, the verb in the sentence, believe, is the Hebrew word aman, same as faith, and the Greek word pistis, which means to put one's trust in something. It's also the linguistic reason why even today we end our prayers the way we do with the English transliteration, amen, as if to say, God, you are trustworthy, and we put our trust in you. Abraham makes a decision to trust God and believe that if God can make the stars, he can help an old man and his wife have a child. But it goes deeper than this. This act of trust is affirmed by God as good and right and pleasing. That's the word righteousness. Sometimes certain theologians focus on the word credited and take it to mean, quote, because there's nothing good about mankind, we therefore can't do anything good. But because Abraham believed and trusted in God, God decides to impute or give Abraham some righteousness that is alien to him that belongs to Jesus, actually, because of his trust. I actually disagree with that assessment. I think in this moment, Abraham does something good and true. He amans or he trusts God's promise, even though it must have seemed improbable or even nonsensical. And that kind of trust is seen by God as righteousness. God is saying, This is exactly right. This is the kind of behavior and attitude and posture I am after. I love this. This is the kind of response God is looking for in his Selim. It's what he wants in his blessable, image bearing covenant partners. The righteousness of this moment is located in the fact that God was pleased because of Abraham's trust. Look how the later biblical author Paul puts it, reflecting back on this moment between Abraham and God in Romans 4. Romans 4.18, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. That is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Why is this such a big deal to God? I think it's because it's so rare. This moment revealed something powerful and instructive about how Abraham is making decisions, what's driving him, and Abraham's trust in God actually confronts our modern way of thinking in some pretty profound ways. In God We Trust The nation I live in, the United States of America, has an official motto, In God We Trust. It's printed on all of our money, which is ironic because money seems to be the thing that functionally America really seems to trust the most. Despite it being the national motto, I don't recall any teachers or principals ever coming over the loudspeaker to say, hey, remember kids, we trust God. The very first Christian song I think I ever heard was the song Tennessee by the group Arrested Development. The lyrics tell a fascinating narrative following a young black man going on a journey with God to figure out his place in life by examining his own past and the past of his ancestors. In the end, he makes a plea, asking to be guided by wisdom and by God. One line still sticks out in my mind. I know you're supposed to be my steering wheel and not just my spare tire. Doesn't it feel like Abraham could have written that song? The speaker in Tennessee is saying, I know, God, you're supposed to guide and direct my life, where I go, what I do, and instead I treat you like something only to be used in the most dire of circumstances, if at all. As I think about it, I suppose the metaphor of a spare tire is not quite accurate. In the story of Abraham, God is asking to be Abraham's GPS. But when the sun came out, nobody knew what GPS was. Whatever, it still works. The point is, Abraham shows us that trusting God is costly. It requires tremendous courage. It means allowing God to steer the direction of your life. It means giving up autonomy, which is the most precious thing us modern folk have. It's the story of Abraham that shows us that doing life with God and loving God means turning over the most important things to us, the things we want, the things we need, the things we think we need. It means turning those things entirely over to God. And look what Abraham does Abraham leaves his family. He trusts God with his deepest relationships. Abraham leaves his land. He trusts God with his daily work and his daily sustenance. Abraham has dreams for his future. He trusts God with his future. Abraham has an idea how his life should go. He trusts God with how his life will turn out. This is a staggering amount of trust. As Abraham's incredible response in Genesis 12 shows us, loving God means taking our deepest needs and desires, and handing them over to God. It means taking our future and handing it over to God. Loving. God means trusting that God will give us what we need. Loving God means trusting that he is good. Loving God means trusting that his ways are somehow higher and better than our ways. And in the case of Abraham, he doesn't get all the information. How will Abraham have a child when his wife is barren? Where exactly is he heading? Where will he end up? What if the people there are hostile? Then what? How can going south through a desert be good? how can leaving the protection of his family not result in his death? These are all very, very good questions. And God does not give Abraham any information that answers any of those questions. And yet still, Abraham trusts. Man, this is a tough thing to look at. We have to be honest about what's driving our life, what's controlling the way we live. Because if we're honest, most of the time our decision-making isn't shaped by a desire to follow God, but something else. And the story of radical trust of Abraham invites us to examine those things. And it also confronts the accepted wisdom of our current culture. Mulan is a big lying liar. One of the most ubiquitous ideas presented in our culture, in whose philosophy we are all bathed, can best be summed up in three short words follow your heart. This mantra is everywhere in our society. And as summed up offers this advice. In life, you'll face a number of difficult decisions and sometimes you won't know what to do. So the best way forward is to go inside, ask yourself, what do you want? What do you think is the right thing? Pay attention to what your emotions and your desires and your values are saying, and then follow them. This philosophy for decision-making and life-living is embedded everywhere but it is reinforced by the most culturally powerful medium that's ever existed in human history, Disney movies. Check it out, some examples. Example one, Cinderella and a bunch of mice famously sing that a dream is a wish your heart makes. Where do dreams come from? Your heart. Example two, in the theme song off the Mulan soundtrack, I'm talking about the 1998 version, which I absolutely owned on CD. Stevie Wonder and 98 Degrees, who were easily the fifth best boy band of that era, sing these words. Though you're unsure, why fight the tide? Don't think so much. Let your heart decide. You must be true to your heart. That's when the heavens will part. Open your eyes. Your heart can tell you no lies. Example number three. Elsa, tired of hiding her true self, makes the bold decision to, quote, let it go deciding to, quote, turn away and slam the door on people who disagree with her in her radical pursuit of her authentic, frosted self. She is going to be the Ice Queen, and she might have had 99 problems, but the cold ate one. Example number four. Then there's Moana. Even though she is the daughter of the chief on an isolated, insular Polynesian island, apparently her sense of identity is not given to her by her tribe, her parents, or her culture, but rather herself. As Moana's grandmother tells her that, quote, if the voice starts to whisper to follow the farthest star, Moana, that voice inside is who you are. Example five. This is the final one. Perhaps most iconic of all, Pinocchio's trusted sidekick, Jiminy Cricket, who came to be known as the personification of personal conscience, sang these famous words When you wish upon a star, makes no difference who you are. Anything your heart desires will come to you. So, how do you know what to do in life? How to make important decisions? Easy! Just follow your inner voice, your inner desires. As we get older, the voices telling us the advice to follow your heart becomes slightly more sophisticated, but the message is still there. In his book, Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics, New York Times columnist Ross Douthat calls this the God Within heresy. Douthat points to author Elizabeth Gilbert, whose memoir *Eat, Pray, Love* was an international bestseller and movie featuring America's sweetheart Julia Roberts as one of the more clear articulations of this idea. Gilbert, tired of her life, tired of her obligations, sought an escape from the constraints of marriage and parenting. In the book she says she heard from God, speaking to her, quote, in my own voice from within my own self, unquote. She says that, quote, God dwells within you as you yourself, exactly the way you are, end quote. And with that, Gilbert found the courage to listen to her own heart, which was telling her to leave her husband and young baby and find deliverance from the solemn vows she had taken to find true freedom, listening to herself, which Gilbert believed was also the very voice of God. My friend Sarah pointed out to me that this trend has only continued, most recently with Glennon Doyle's 2020 book, Untamed, which was a New York Times bestseller selling more than two million copies. It basically says the same thing. The way to find yourself is to listen to the voice inside yourself. As Douthat writes, quote, these cultural voices are telling an affluent, appetitive society exactly what it wants to hear that all its deepest desires are really God's desires, and he wouldn't dream of judging, and that, quote, nothing defines the last decade of American life more than our inability to master our own impulses and desires. Of course, the story of Abraham shows us concretely that the voice of God might be difficult to hear. It might even be a whisper, but it's always other. God is not us. We are not God. God is other. So, what if follow your heart is actually, accidentally terrible advice? What if, despite what we are told by our culture, the media, and even our friends, our emotions and desires are at best occasionally unreliable and at worst deeply deceptive? After all, the evidence does seem to suggest this. We have all seen tragic examples of people following their heart to disastrous ends. You've seen this, right? Maybe you've even lived it. Perhaps these voices inside of us are worthy of a bit more consideration. Perhaps when it comes to trustworthy guides, our desires are unreliable. Perhaps they're even more dangerous than tree ocelots. (laughs) Ha ha! That's right, buckle up, boys and girls. I'm about to get all Discovery Channel on you. Tree ocelots. Tree ocelots live in the tropical jungles of the Brazilian Amazon rainforest and are largely nocturnal cats that use keen sight and hearing to hunt small prey, things like rabbits, rodents, iguanas, fish, and frogs. They also take to the trees and stalk monkeys. But monkeys, high in the rooftop canopy, are tough to catch. They have the higher ground and have keen eyesight. So, what do the tree ocelots do? They mimic the sound of baby monkeys in distress. That's right. Tree ocelots make a sound that mimics the sound of baby monkeys crying out in distress. And that draws in the adult monkeys who then get eaten. This is just incredibly messed up. In the words of the researchers who discovered this back in 2010 and wrote about it in one of their articles in National Geographic, it quote, revealed a psychological cunning we did not expect, end quote. But there's a lesson here for all of us. Following your heart might be the worst thing that ever happened to you, because despite what we are told by our culture, by the media, and even our friends, our emotions and desires are at best occasionally unreliable, and at worst, deeply deceptive. Okay, please pay attention to what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. I am not saying to ignore your emotions or ignore your desires. Back to the triosalon. Is it morally wrong for the mama monkeys to want to follow their instinct to protect and help their baby monkeys? No. Are those instincts God-given? Yes, absolutely. It's just that the monkeys would be wise to, as they attempt to rescue baby monkeys, make sure it's a baby monkey and not a deadly predator. In other words, we should always pay attention Our emotions and desires, but we should never blindly obey them. There is a difference. Author Lisa Turkust has a great quote that's similar. She writes Feelings are indicators, not dictators. They can indicate where your heart is in the moment, but that doesn't mean they have the right to dictate your behavior and boss you around. Or, as a high school student I work with put it, emotions are great guard dogs, but they're terrible seeing eye dogs. External hard drives. But that cacophony of internal voices and desires and dreams isn't the only thing that guides us. There's another, external pressures. These pressures aren't necessarily things you choose, but rather pressures that come and shape your life and decision-making that are external to you. They can come from your city or your culture, or most powerfully, from unspoken or spoken expectations from your own family of origin. A number of years ago, I met a guy named Hao who started coming to our church. Hao had come to the U.S. for his education and quickly moved up through the ranks of Silicon Valley. As I listened to Hao talk about all the projects he had worked on, I was struck by two things. One, his brilliance. He had not one but three doctorates. And two, his humble origins. He was born in a village in rural China. And then his educational journey took him to Shanghai, then to Singapore, then to the Bay Area for his advanced degrees. I had never in my life met anyone with three doctorates, and I told him so. How told me that if I thought he was smart, I should meet his brother. Oh, does your brother live out here? I asked How. No, he's back living with my parents. I found out that How's older, brilliant brother had never even left the small rural village in China. I asked How why. He explained, because he's the older brother, and that's what was expected of him. I tried to make sense of this. I said, I- is your brother, I paused and I searched for the right words, is he resentful that you got to leave and get your education and he never did? Oh, no, Hal said matter of factly, he's a firstborn, so we stayed to take care of our parents. I was the secondborn, so I was able to leave. If I had been the firstborn, I would have had to stay. The more I talked to Hal, the more I realized that the unique demands of his cultural background and his family of origin exhibited far more pressure on him than anything I had ever experienced. This is, in a way, kind of the complete opposite of follow your heart. It's not the internal dreams and wishes and desires you're trying to sort out. It's external pressures and expectations you're fighting to manage and live up to. And these are sometimes every bit as demanding. An example. Here in the San Francisco Bay Area, we are one of the most educated regions and wealthiest places in the entire U.S. It's home to Stanford University and a whole slew of powerful innovative tech companies, and its public schools are some of the highest performing in the nation. It turns out that there's a tremendous general cultural and often family pressure put on kids to perform academically. Where my kids attend school, a good percentage of the 6th, 7th, and 8th graders take courses throughout the summer in math. The goal is to enter high school at least a grade ahead in math. This means that instead of taking a leisurely break filled with playing outside, going to the pool, watching movies, and long summer family vacations, these students spend hours a day racing through math concepts to learn an entire grade level's math skills in one summer. In some circles, it's actually seen as shameful for a student to be at their actual grade level in math. That is a lot of pressure to excel, to be at least a grade ahead in math. And this is not limited to my kid's school. In many other schools across the Bay and across the nation, there's a tremendous pressure to be successful, to be in as many advanced and honors courses as possible, to get perfect grades. Instead of a school being a supportive place that kids find their sweet spot, a hyper-competitive culture begins to emerge where kids are expected to be perfect in every area and every subject. My son the other day showed me a meme from a Reddit board saying that this was the new grading scale. A, average. B, below average. C, can't have dinner. D, don't come home. F, find a new family. Which is funny, until it isn't. I've seen this kind of external pressure create unhealth students who begin spending hours and hours and hours on homework, doing their absolute best to ace the next test and turn in that flawless paper, students who cut out sleep in an effort to get better grades. And for a lot of students, as we've seen, this pressure is just too much because there comes a time when you look around and realize you just can't keep up academically. This is an external pressure. And sometimes those external pressures are so intense, you internalize them. It's easy to see how those pressures begin to, quote, drive your life. Is there a way out? I think there is, but it is tough work. Tell it to my heart. If the dominant cultural message is follow your heart, then how does that relate to the words of Jesus who tells us to love the Lord with all of our heart? How do those overlap? In the Bible, the word heart, the Hebrew word labab or leb, and the Greek word cardia is used more than a Thousand times, more than 586 in the Old Testament alone, making it the most common anthropological term used in the entire Bible. And although the word heart denotes the actual organ that beats inside a person's rib cage, it also means much, much more. Old Testament scholars Dr. Tremper Longman, who wrote a dictionary for the Old Testament, and Dr. Bruce K. Waltke, who wrote a two volume commentary on the book of Proverbs, set out to study the Hebrew use of the word heart. They say that the best translation for the word heart in English is not the word emotions. This is bizarre because every single love song talks about the heart as being the center of our emotions. But these scholars say a better translation would be the word motives. Longman says the Hebrew word heart is distinct from the will, the mind, and the emotions. It's actually the driving force for all three, which, again, is very disorienting. After all, Tony Braxton did not tell someone to unbreak her motives. And it is strange to think of Celine Dion telling us that her motives will go on, and even more jarring to consider that Billy Ray Cyrus has achy-breaky motives. Or Kanye wondering how you could be so motiveless. I could keep going. Should I keep going? No, I'll stop. I'll stop. In my seminary cohort, Gary called the heart our, quote, control panel. I love that. Your control panel. The heart is what makes you do what you do. The heart is what motivates you. It's what you'll spend your life's energy going after. It's what your mind fixates on. It's what your emotions love. It's what you direct your will and your life's energy toward. It's what makes you, you. Waltke says the Bible consistently is asking us to examine our heart. What are you really after? What do you have set as your deepest goal? What gives you meaning? What do you most want in this life? What's your heart after, really? And here's the troubling part. What if whatever has your heart or your control panel is your functional God? And if our heart is off, and if our motives are off, and our control panel is off, that's troubling too, because that means we can short-circuit our own life. What if bad motives are like a GPS that won't guide us true, and like Michael Scott, we end up driving our rental car into a pond, or worse? Connect four. I have a friend who told me that in his experience, there are four main things that pull for our heart, for our control panel, four things that we're all going after, four things that drive our lives. He says that every single person is pulled toward one of them. I don't know if he's right, but it's resulted in some very powerful and vulnerable conversations. Let me share what he calls the four motives. I'll explain each and then we'll get into it. Motive number one, approval. This is for people who need people to like them. The mantra is if someone is upset with me, then something's wrong with me. They're motivated by affirming relationships. Their greatest fear is rejection. And their problem emotion is cowardice. They don't say the real and tough things because they're afraid of rejection. And their message to others is sure, you can walk all over me. Motive number two comfort. I never want to do anything difficult. The mantra in their head is, I'm in way over my head. They are motivated by freedom and leisure. Their greatest fear is that stress and demands will come and make demands on their life. Their problem, emotion is boredom, busyness, and their message to others is, you're not worth my time or my efforts. Motive three, control. These people say, I need to know every plan. The mantra that runs in their head is, if I don't stay vigilant, things will fall apart. They're motivated by self-discipline, high standards. Their greatest fear is uncertainty, and their problem, emotion, is worry. And their message to others is, you can't handle life on your own. And motive four, performance. People who need to win. The mantra that runs in their head is, if I don't win, I'm not worth anything. Motivated by success, by winning. Their greatest fear is humiliation or losing, and their problem emotion is anger. And the message they send to others is, you'll never be good enough. As I read those four, I'm going to guess you probably have one of those that calls out to you. I don't know which one it might be, but I'm guessing there's one. And as you listen to those four motives, which one resonated most with you? First grade, Optimus Prime and Crippling Shame. If my previous paragraphs about academics had a tone that made it sound like I was being judgmental toward parents or students chasing academic performance, I I didn't mean to sound like that. I didn't. None of us escape from the power of our broken motives. And all of us have experience with messy, messed up motives that seem to drive us, sometimes in ways we're not even aware of and which sometimes don't lead us anywhere good. None of us get to escape this. Not you and not me. I guess especially not me. For me, my messed-up heart motive started when I was in first grade in Mrs. Neal's class at Valley Elementary. It was the same school where my mother, Kay Tish, taught kindergarten. Some of the details are fuzzy. I don't remember what time of year this happened. I remember Matt Bowman was sitting next to me. Matt would sometimes bring Transformers to school and play with them under his desk. I remember on this day he had Optimus Prime with him. The class was talking about family structure, and the topic of adoption came up. And my ears perked up after all, I was adopted. Since before I could remember, my parents had told me I was adopted and that I was a special gift given to them. Mrs. Neal was explaining adoption. She said, well, you know who's adopted, don't you? David, David's adopted. He's Mrs. Tish's son. A lot of the kids in that first grade class had my mom for kindergarten. So she was practically a local celebrity. The kids all kind of nodded to themselves. They had a category in their mind for what adopted meant. And now they knew someone, me. I felt kind of cool for a second. I was the only one in the room that was adopted, maybe the only person that they knew who was adopted. You're adopted, huh? Matt Bowman said to me. Yeah, I said, because I was. And then he said a sentence. What was wrong with you that your mom wanted to get rid of you? And with that, a poison arrow entered my heart. I hadn't thought about it that way. But now it was the only way I could ever think about it. Maybe there was something wrong with me. Maybe that's why I was adopted. And a new feeling came. Shame. For the next 17 years, that terrible thought would plague me. It would also drive me. I became fanatical about achievement, trying to prove to everyone around me that I was worth keeping around. I labored tirelessly in school because grades weren't just letters but symbols of my own worth. I became the class clown because people like funny people and I wanted them to want me around. It was a never-ending hamster wheel of performance because I had to prove I was worth keeping. There's a word for this feeling, shame. It's a terrible taskmaster, just terrible. There's a famous TED talk on shame by a researcher named Brene Brown from the University of Houston who said this, and I quote, There's only one variable that separated the people who have a strong sense of love and belonging and the people who always struggle with it and wonder if they're good enough. And that was the people who have a strong sense of love and belonging believe they are worthy of love and belonging. How are you supposed to have a strong sense that you're worthy of love and belonging if your own biological mom wanted to get rid of you? How do you know when you've done enough to earn love? You don't. And that's why I studied so hard. That's because my sense of worth was at stake. Don't you see? The grades were a simple numerical reflection of my value. That's why I stayed up, memorizing comedy albums and reading every human column and book by Dave Barry I could get my hands on because if I could learn to be funny, then I could make people laugh. And laughter felt very much like the same thing as approval. So you keep going, you perform, you do what it takes. You make people happy. And for me, the broken motives, the heart dysfunction was believing if I perform well and was successful and made people happy, that I'd be okay because then I'd be loved. I was following this motive, this heart motive of trying to gain acceptance. It was driven by external circumstances, my adoption, and internal needs to placate the deep shame and insecurity. My motives were a mess and they were absolutely driving the car of my life, even if I didn't know it confronting our motives. Look, I'm not here to throw shade at anyone. The goal, remember, is to love God and part of loving God is trusting him. And we all have areas of our life, maybe even whole sectors of our life where we find it difficult to trust God, we all do. But I get convicted when I read the story of Abraham because at least in this moment, Abraham shows us what it looks like to trust. And I mean, really trust God. The biblical text doesn't give us a ton of information about Abraham's core motives, but his actions reveal deep trust. Abraham doesn't follow his heart. Abraham doesn't follow his family or his culture either. In the book of Romans, an absolutely brilliant scholar of the Hebrew scriptures named Paul talks about the radical trust that Abraham showed, which we talked about earlier. In a letter to a church at Galatia, Paul is steaming hot mad, almost furious, because people started saying that in order to be right with God you had to become Jewish, which meant getting circumcised like every good Jewish boy would be. Paul is trying to show that these kinds of religious customs, though for Jews are very very important, were no longer important for Christians. Paul is trying to show that the seeds of this idea go back to the beginning of the Hebrew scriptures. Paul shows through the story of Abraham that keeping the rules or following religious customs or religious tradition, even something as central to the Jewish people as circumcision, isn't nearly as important as having your inner motives, your heart, completely rewired by your love and trust of God. In Galatians 3, Paul writes this. Galatians 3 verse 5, so again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by works of the law? or by your trust and loyalty, what you heard. So also Abraham trusted God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have trust and loyalty are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by trust and loyalty and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on trust and loyalty are blessed along with Abraham the man filled with trust and loyalty. Paul is saying that the children of Abraham aren't those who are Jewish or those who are circumcised, not that there's anything wrong with that, but rather any person from any ethnic tribe or any group who trusts God, because this act shows that they love God. Toward the end of this library of 66 books, there is a letter from the brother of Jesus himself, a man named James. James, in reflecting on Abraham, also highlights his incredible trust in God. And in James chapter 2, verse 22, James writes this, You see, his trust and his actions were working together. His trust was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham trusted God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by trust alone. Again, James is not talking about doing something to get into God's good favor. His broader point is that how trust and action have to work together. James is saying Abraham's story is about trusting God and how that's going to result in action. If you trust, that is not going to stay in your mind as a core belief only. The other side of the coin of faith is action, putting your money where your mouth is, so to speak. If your motives shift the way you live, your life is going to shift. Whatever Abraham's core motives were, or what your core motives are, I am fascinated at how the call of Abraham by God in Genesis 12 completely challenges each of those four motives. Let me go through them again, starting with approval. People who want approval need people to like them. And God says to Abraham, Leave your family. And tell them it's because you had a supernatural encounter with a deity who told you to leave them. They will be furious with you and will feel hurt and deep disappointment. Never mind them. Get yourself out. So that's challenging. Motive number two, comfort. These folks say, I never want to do anything difficult. God says, sure, you have a sweet setup in Haran. You're by a few rivers. The city's thriving. You're thriving. Move everything. Walk 600 miles through the desert to a new place with new customs, and rebuild everything. Is that a challenge to comfort? (laughs) You betcha. Control, motive number three. You need to know every plan. God says, I'm not telling you anything about the important details, anything. Not where you're going, not even a direction. I will tell you as you need to know. Does that challenge your desire for control? Whew, boy howdy. And then lastly, performance. Folks who need to win. God says to challenge that, I want you to leave all the ways you've measured success or anyone in your culture measures success. Leave your family, leave your land, start over as a dusty nomad. Man, Abraham teaches us to recognize that each of us have core motives and that those things might be legitimate or they might not be. But Abraham's trust of God is a way forward. It's a way of saying, I will not let my blind adherence to this drive my life and my most important decisions. I will trust God. One of my favorite quotes ever is from the Christian philosopher and theologian Dallas Willard, who wrote in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, the following words. He wrote, it is one of the major transitions of life to recognize who has taught us, mastered us, and then to evaluate the results in us of their teaching this is a harrowing task, and sometimes we just can't face it. But it can also open the door to choose other masters, possibly better masters, and one master above all. The story of Abraham's trust is the same invitations. What motives and desires have controlled my life this far? What does it mean to trust God with those deep desires? Abraham teaches us to recognize That following God might look like giving up my deepest heart desires, but in reality, following God is the only way to get what I most need in life. Trusting God means trusting Him with not only part of your life, but with your entire essence and the whole of your life. No matter which one of the big four is your core motive, God is both confronting and comforting us, inviting us to trust Him as He refines our motives and redirects and redefines how we live our lives. For people who yearn for approval, Abraham teaches us to pray this. How you've made me is enough. I don't take my direction or marching orders or get my value from other people, not even my own family. People are often fickle and manipulative or have agendas. God, you know me best, and I find my truest identity with you. My most sacred relationship is with you. That will guide me. For people who yearn for comfort, Abraham teaches us to pray this. God, you are asking me to join you in your mission to bless the whole world. That is demanding. It will cost me. But it's also so beautiful and so good it deserves to be done. I am afraid, but I will set aside my comfort to follow you into this, knowing you will go with me and that somehow giving up the good will allow me to see and live in the best. God, may your unfailing love be my comfort. For folks who yearn for control, Abraham teaches us to pray this, Lord, I am not in control. I have never been. Trying to seize control is a way of pretending I am God. I am not. I trust you to direct my future. I don't need to be controlled by fear of the unknown. You will not change your mind and abandon me. And for people who yearn for success, Abraham teaches us to pray this, God, whatever you give me is enough. I don't need a greater reputation. I don't need wider acclaim. I don't need to grab and seize to expand my own kingdom. I will harvest faithfully and gratefully the plot of land you've given to me, and I will use my life not to seek my own good alone, but to help and serve others. A big part of loving God means trusting him. Back to Hawaii and gecko poop. After cleaning the entire surface area of the white plaster walls of the entire church and scrubbing every wood plank of the entire 360-degree deck, I was too tired to be angry anymore. Exhausted and defeated, I made my way inside. I grabbed a chilled bottle of water and sat down in Dr. Sam's office. Do you know why I had you do that? Dr. Sam asked me. I had no answer. I shook my head no. Look, David. I know you want to do something powerful and big with your life, Dr. Sam said. I can hear the aspirations and dreams when I talk to you, but you need to know the way to make an impact in this world is to serve. Dr. Sam then spoke about humility. He spoke about Jesus who introduced the virtue of humility to the ancient world by taking the basin and the towel and washing his disciples' feet. He told me about Dr. Martin Luther King's famous sermon about the drum major instinct, the desire to be first, to be important, and how God redefines and redirects that desire. Instead of wanting to be on top, God wants us to be people who are the first to serve, the first to help, the first to love. Dr. Sam was totally pulling a Mr. Miyagi, building into me a lesson I didn't even know I needed, wax on, wax off. And as I look back to that time, cleaning that gecko poop with that red bucket, I realized I had not trusted. This first work assignment in Hawaii had made no sense to me. I was blind that something good was happening or could come out of this dumb, menial, degrading work. The whole situation was counterintuitive to me. Its value escaped my mind. It's not what I have chosen. I didn't like it. It didn't make sense to me. But God, through Dr. Sam, was up to something because I was an arrogant, self-centered, self-absorbed, only child, recent college grad, and something had to change inside me. And let me tell you, if I'd listened to my own internal desires, if I'd followed myself, I would have missed it. For the rest of my time in Hawaii, that entire community showed me other-centered, self-sacrificing, agape kind of love. That community in Hawaii served me with devotion and care that I not only did not deserve, but could never, ever repay. In Hawaii, ohana means nobody gets left behind. They treated me like family. I learned how to live the Christian life in Hawaii, and the trajectory of the rest of my entire life was set on that island. God was at work, even though I didn't see it. And that is how I learned to trust God, even while cleaning gecko poop. And that's the key lesson of this scene. Abraham shows us in this moment that loving God means trusting him, even when it doesn't make sense, which is exactly what Abraham does until he doesn't. And with that, that leads us to our next chapter.